This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. Welcome to the Do Better Podcast. On today's episode, we are musing about verbal behavior and RFT. This is Megan. And this is Joe. And this is where we blast off to the final frontier in search of improving ourselves in the field of behavior analysis. Thank you for spending time with us. Now let us begin. Hi, Joe. How are you today? I'm awesome. And I'm super excited to be here with you as well, Megan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited that we are recording an episode called Megan's Musings on Verbal Behavior and RFT because this is a topic I have a lot of thoughts about and hopefully we don't take too long going over those, but I've been putting lots of comments or little snippets out into social media and then when doing peak trainings, I kind of get on various soapboxes about this. So I thought, what better way to just really get all of the thoughts out there than have a podcast episode on it? That's, that sounds awesome. And I'm super excited to listen to you. Um, can you let the listeners, um, those that don't know you, um, can you just tell them a little bit about yourself? That sounds like a wonderful idea. We should probably have you do the same. So I'm Dr. Megan Miller. And about two years ago, I started a movement called the Do Better Movement. And it was Joe's wonderful idea that we add a podcast to the movement to help improve professional development for people that like to listen to podcasts and have some just real life everyday conversations between myself, a BCBA who's been practicing for 12 years and someone who's a little bit newly certified, but also has a different background in the field of teaching first, which would be you. So, yeah. um, so I do a kind of a bit a bunch of different things in the field right now, but I mostly work on training and disseminating information to help people improve their practice. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm so lucky to have uh, met you and your, the awesome team that you work with. Um, and yeah, as, as Megan was saying, I came, I have a different background. I have been a special ed teacher for 10 plus years now. Um, and I didn't know anything about ABA until someone suggested that I look into it to further my education. And once I did, I mean, it was just a roller coaster. I was just like, uh, full on, let's do this, let's get the coursework done, let's um, get my supervision hours, and let me get into the field. So uh, this year, I'm going back into classroom full-time while also uh, providing ABA services as a BSBA um, here in Virginia Beach. Wonderful. And how long have you been certified? I have been certified for a year and one month. Awesome. <laughs> so we've got, you know, the nice um, separation there. I think sometimes too, when 
you've been in the field for a bit, you kind of forget what it was like to be newer to the field and like all the things you didn't know that you've learned over time. So I'm really excited to see what different perspectives and content we can provide, especially on this topic, verbal behavior and relational frame theory, but with all of the topics that we cover in this podcast. Yeah, I, uh, I want to, um, I'm super excited just to learn more from you and um, also be able to put this out for not only uh, seasoned BCBAs, but also newly minted BCBAs as well. Perfect. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the purpose of this particular episode. So this is, as I mentioned, a musings episode. We have a few different formats that we're doing. Basically, the musing means I just ramble and talk about my <laughs> thoughts on things. And then Joe gets to chime in with his thoughts as well. So I listened to a podcast that Matt Sicoria did with the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Dave Palmer and Josh Pritchard, who are both well-known experts in their relative areas of language study. So David Palmer representing verbal behavior, Josh Pritchard representing relational frame theory. And it was a really wonderful episode. I learned a lot from it. However, I left wondering, and they touched on this towards the end. Basically, my big takeaway question was, what does it matter to the practitioner when we're looking at verbal behavior, RFT, language development, and cognition? How have these areas of study contributed to our success and effectiveness as a practitioner? And how do graduate programs address these topics? So that's kind of where a lot of my thoughts on this will be going as we talk today. But that's what happened for me when I listened to that episode. What about you? Um, it was very um, informative and I really appreciate um, Matt hosting it and um, just the two different camps coming together to talk about verbal behavior and RFT. Um, it was very intense and <laughs> it had a lot of information. So I listened to that podcast maybe five, six, seven times to really get a good um, gist of what they were talking about too. Cause it's a lot of information. Yep. And from my previous experience, um, while I was doing my coursework, we talked a lot about, we took, talked about verbal behavior, but RFT was one of those topics that we covered in one class and that was it. So I had no experience with RFT until um, I started working for Navigation Behavioral Consulting um, here in Virginia Beach. Yeah. And we're fortunate because, well, you have me involved there, but we also have Leah, who yes. was studied at SIU with Dr. Dixon. So she's been really helpful in that. And just a, a few other BCBAs who are interested in that area of study. And we've brought in some additional people to help with training on that and whatnot. When I was in graduate school for my master's, we even had a professor who was from a program uh, that was very heavily focused on RFT, but it still wasn't covered in our coursework beyond stimulus equivalents, I mean, which there's stimulus equivalents and then RFTs like in addition to that. So we obviously had to learn stimulus equivalents, but there was nothing, no discussion about RFT. And even my initial exposure to it from early adopters in the field who I guess maybe are more drawn to like theory 
was not helpful because I would watch them talk about it. And it was a lot of words I didn't understand. And it went way over my head <laughs> and I couldn't take away anything practitioner related. And I just was like, Nope, I don't have time for this. I leave your theories and your philosophy over here. I'm just trying to figure out what I can do with my clients. Yes. Yes. It's definitely a lot of information to take in um, a lot of additional vocabulary to learn as well. Yes. Yep. And I'm still not, even though I do the peak trainings, I'm not completely fluent in it myself either. And that's one of the things I really like about peak or if, if there's ever any other systems <laughs> published similar to that, um, you don't necessarily have to fully understand it. Obviously the more you understand the theories, the better you'll be able to implement things, but you can start, you know, getting programming into place for your clients based on that research right away without having to memorize everything and be fluent with everything. So we'll probably talk about that a bit more as we go into the topics. Did you have anything else to add just about like your thoughts on the podcast, your general um, observations? No, I mean like it was, it was just a lot of information and um, um, I went, I left feeling after the podcast was over, I felt like I learned a lot, but at the same time, I wanted more information. Right. So. <laughs> that's how it always is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, and that's good though, to leave something recognizing that you need more information and then you can seek that out. Whereas if you didn't have that exposure to the podcast, you wouldn't even know what you didn't know and what you needed more information on. <laughs> Yes. So I'll move into the first kind of topic of my musings then. One of the things that when I was thinking about the practitioner perspective on all of this and these theoretical debates that happen, especially with verbal behavior and RFT, I was thinking about my early experience with early intensive behavioral intervention based more on LOVAS, a lot of in-home programs using things like the me book and um, early behavioral interventions. And what I was thinking about is that Lovas didn't incorporate Skinner's work in verbal behavior or the operands. So for my first couple of years in the field, or I guess it was just a year, that's, we didn't, I didn't even know that that existed. I didn't know that was a thing. And I didn't obviously have programs designed around that. Once I learned about that, uh, the different verbal behavior operands, I was able to set up my programming to make sure we were targeting each of the different operants as opposed to just teaching topography because under my initial training in the field, it was all just topographical and, it, you know, looking at teaching receptive, expressive, responding and matching, but it was more based off of these topographies. Matching is an easier topography than receptive ID and receptive ID is an easier topography than listener or than expressive but it wasn't based around the function that the language served for the individual. So when I, once I obviously learned more about the function of language, it was a lot easier to make progress with our clients because we could use that to our advantage and making sure we were appropriately addressing all of the different functions. However, we still encountered problems with language development that I couldn't really explain. Like a lot of our learners struggled with different, not opposites and what we were calling more abstract concepts. And if you look at some of the early assessments and programming materials and behavior analysis for in-home intervention, those concepts don't come into play until pretty far into the, the materials. So 
if you're looking at the VB map, they're in like level two, level three. If you're looking at some of the other materials out there, there's usually about 30 or 40 different programs that are targeted before these other concepts are implemented or focused on. So without diving into anything theoretical or looking at a deep dive into the philosophical, theoretical, or even applied research on these topics, thinking about just the fact more as a practitioner, as someone whose time is allocated to writing programs and providing intervention, like just being realistic, there's very little time for um, trying to really get into the weeds and at what we have at our disposal as a practitioner assessment and curriculum development. We have to make decisions very quickly and it's enough to just learn the different materials available to us. As practitioners, we're not, we can't all just sit in an ivory tower and study philosophy and theory and you know, have these wonderful debates back and forth about what's true and what isn't. So what I've been um, you know, kind of focusing on um, at that point in my career with what was available to me, I actually had to start diving into resources outside of our field because the, the resources that were available to me to address those issues of the learners not uh, acquiring skills like opposites or understanding not or different or even if they did understand those things when they got into higher order problem solving and being able to figure out things like cause and effect and um, inferences and predictions and all of that type of stuff, the best resources that were out there were actually from speech language and products published by companies like Super Duper and Lingua Systems. So we saw the need and we dove in and got those products and started making changes with our clients around what they had available, but there wasn't really anything in, in the R field. And I didn't have, and wasn't trained on in my graduate programs, necessarily the uh, ability to problem solve or troubleshoot for myself at that time. So that's kind of the early background and like the problems we were encountering. I don't know if you have any thoughts or questions about that. Uh, that like, like me as a practitioner, like the one thought I had was like, so that early, the early programs that you were running, what did that look like? Well, it was kind of different the way this, so this was back in like the early 2000s, but even, you know, for people that were implementing in the 90s, it would, would be pretty similar. And still even today in different countries, depending on their access to resources, the structure was, there was a consultant who wasn't necessarily the, the board certification didn't start until 1997. So these weren't necessarily, they weren't BCBAs, especially up in Ohio. They were people with backgrounds, usually in psychology, that happened to take jobs as students working for families who happened to get in with LOVAS. Where I lived in Columbus, there was a LOVAS replication site at the Children's Hospital. So they had like their own materials that they'd been either creating or working off of from LOVAS. And you would come in for a two-day workshop it's the first time meeting the family. The first day they had a, um, everyone had almost the same, but they made it themselves handbook that went over like basic ABA terminology, reinforcement, prompting, punishment, negative reinforcement, functions of behavior, but not really um, at the level. Like once I went to grad school, it was made way more apparent. It wasn't really functions. It was more like behavior mod. Um, if a child's trying to get out of a demand, make sure you follow through, but no. And if a child's doing something, you know, that you don't want them to keep doing, make sure you don't give attention for it. But there was nothing about like 
assessing and analyzing to see if those were actually the functions. It was just your general rule to follow. So we would do that the first day and then the second day they would implement their programs with the children. There were no like assessments people were using. There wasn't, nobody was using like even um, developmental assessments like the Vineland, well that's adaptive, but the Vineland or like the LEAP, um, the Mullen, none of those were being used. They may, the children when they got diagnosed with autism, the psychologists may have, you know, done some of those assessments, but that wasn't used to develop their programming. And whenever we would ask, you know, well, how did you come up with these programs? Where are they from? It was just like, oh, we have our resources. There was no like book to look at or anything like that. Some of the consultants were using the me book or the, um, the book by um, Dr. Green, the um, intensive behavioral interventions book. It's green. Um, and, but they never like would show that to us or explain to us that's what they were doing. We were just expected to follow whatever. But basically all of the children followed the same sequence. It was, you know, matching, learning letters, shapes, colors, numbers, and common items. And then you would do all of those and go through receptive ID, expressive ID. There was no focus on man training. Um, there was motor imitation, receptive instructions. And then, um, we would work on toileting with a lot of them because they were little and feeding things like that. And then we also would do play, but it wasn't play. It was like motor imitation and object imitation, very task analyzed, very broken down, very rote. So it was, but it, I mean, it was very structured and like that people came in and knew what they were going to do, but it wasn't really individualized necessarily. And again, there was no incorporating anything about, functions of language or even typical child development, like what two-year-old really knows letters, shapes, colors, and numbers, right? Two-year-olds are typically working on like social referencing and gaze shifting and shared enjoyment and play and like actual play with toys, not being sat at a table and like structure going through um, a task analysis with a toy. So there was, I mean, again, it was way beyond better than what these children had exposure to from the beginning but it wasn't anything like what we have available to us today. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. That was a really long answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's great because I got, like, I love to learn the history of ABA as well as um, what early interventions looked like. So. Right. Yeah. And like I said, there's still a lot of places that do incorporate things in this way. Um, and again, it's not that there's any, that they're doing anything wrong. It's probably that they don't know better. Once they know better, they can do better, but that's what they're being trained on, you know, and that's what was the focus uh, initially. So, but then at the same patterns happening with verbal behavior. So in the like early 2000s, Dr. Carbone, Dr. Sunberg, Dr. Partington, Dr. McGreevy all did a wonderful job disseminating what they had been learning from Jack Michael and verbal behavior, um, studying Skinner, and like they did the deep diving and really learned, like, like just dove in um, on the theory there. And then they used that to improve the same stuff I had been doing, they had been doing too, but they used that to improve that work, right? And make, you know, okay, why aren't we teaching based on the operands? Why aren't we working more off of motivation? Why aren't we focusing more on typical language development? Um, why aren't we setting ourselves up more like an M&M? I know that's not always the best, but like we, the kids should love us when we walk in the house. They shouldn't be running away from us. So they, you know, made that push forward in the early 2000s and went against the grain 
of what everyone else was doing. And I, you know, they were revered and loved for that. But now it's 2019 and research didn't stop. We didn't <laughs> stop learning things about language development. And here we have the same issue happening where we have new things being discovered and people are fighting back against those discoveries or maybe even, and I kind of talk about this in a minute, but maybe even claiming, well, we've already been doing that. We just call it this. So you're wrong which makes no sense to me. Like, okay, we just call it different things. How can we bring it together <laughs> and like do better for all kids? Who cares what it's called? And I'm obviously in a science, you need to be, um, you need to be conceptually systematic, systematic and technological, but we shouldn't be fighting over what we call it. We should be recognizing the phenomena exists and then mm -hmm. pulling our resources to figure out how to best incorporate that with the children or adults that we're serving. Yes. That's, I mean, that's the whole reason why I got into ABA because I saw the power that ABA has and I want to help um, students and these kiddos uh, with um, just what will be the most beneficial for them in their life. Right. And I think that's everyone's initial motivation, right? Low boss set out to figure out how to improve the lives of the children he was working with. And he did the best with the resources available to him at that time. And even the Lovas Institute made major improvements over time as well. They advanced their research. And uh, if you go there, they're doing things a lot differently than his initial research publications. But unfortunately, not everyone goes to the Lovas Institute. They may just look at what was initially published and just try to implement that. And then we have with the, the verbal behavior camp, they, same thing. They were working with their clients and wanted to do better and improve what they were doing and they found resources to do that. And then now we have relational frame theory being incorporated into this as well. I mean, there's obviously many other things, but from the language, language development perspective, and I guess I just don't understand the infighting. Like everyone has that same motivation. We're trying to do the best we can for our children but then it's like egos come into it or something and you start to get distracted. And then that affects us negatively as practitioners, because we just need to know how to best work with our learners. We don't really care about the pissing matches that are happening between, you know, professors or researchers or experts in the field, or at least I don't, I mean, it sounds like I do, I guess, cause we're doing a whole podcast on it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's more just to be like, stop doing that. Yeah. All right. So, Entering into RFT, relational frame theory. Um, so how did I end up learning about relational frame theory and what was functional? So it wasn't until several, several years ago when I saw people presenting from FIT Learning at the Precision Teaching Conference. So FIT Learning has, they are in Reno, Nevada, was like the first location and now they have locations throughout the world and they incorporate precision teaching and relational frame theory and just some of the other advancements in behavioral science to make amazing gains with their learners. Like you watch their presentations and you think you know nothing. <laughs> They're like, what <laughs> is going on here? I want to do that with all of my children. And then uh, Dr. Dixon's lab at SIU was presenting on how they were incorporating relational frame theory into their applied practice. It wasn't until I saw those two applied practice examples of like, this is what we're doing in real life with this research that's being done that I was able to really see the value of the things that were being researched within relational frame theory. And I can tell you, 
had I just tried to read the books and the research from relational frame theory or even really verbal behavior, it would not have benefited me as a practitioner. There is nothing in any of those books that as just purely a practitioner, I could take away from anything. For verbal behavior, we read uh, Sunberg and Partington's book on teaching children with autism language. I don't, I should have the official title memorized, but I don't. That was published in the late 90s. You know, that's how I learned verbal behavior. I read Mary Barbera's book, The Verbal Behavior Approach. That's how I learned verbal behavior. I took verbal behavior in uh, my master's program, and then I helped GA it in my doctorate program. And I still wouldn't say I know it any better <laughs> from reading the book or anything. All that stuff just flies right out of my head because it's not functional typically for my learners. And same with RFT. Uh, I've, uh, like I mentioned, I've done, try to go to conference presentations, try to read some of the books and none of it, you know, connected with me as a practitioner and like a how to use this information with your clients. Uh, so like I said, I attended a few talks that were more theoretical in nature and not applied, not practitioner focused. And I left every single one of those talks like, well, <laughs> that was a waste of time. I have no idea what this is going to do for me as a practitioner. But seeing that applied practitioner focus side of things where these people basically did the work for us, getting into the weeds and figuring out how to apply that to the work we're doing, that's what really helped me see the value of incorporating the work from RFT into the intervention. And we all have our places. Like there are people who are highly motivated by doing that type of research and making those discoveries. And there are people like us who are highly motivated to work right in the field, boots on the ground and apply those discoveries with the learners and get feedback to the researchers on like what else we need to have studied so we can do better work in the field. So I'm not like discounting any of those things, but we need those people. We can't all be expected to be those people. We play different roles. So the key piece that was missing for me um, when I went to these different presentations was the concepts of the frames and really making sure that you're developing your interventions focused around teaching the different frames. So still teaching sameness, which is basically the only frame that early behavior analytic intervention programs focus on with all of that matching. That happens, you do, um, you know, common objects, preferred objects, common items, preferred items, letters, numbers, colors, shapes, actions. is <laughs> <laughs> like so many things that matching happens with and uh, matching picture to object, object to picture, matching non-identical. So there's all of these different programs around sameness, but there's nothing around teaching differentness, teaching oppositeness, and those types of things relating to the frames until well later in the programs. So I also learned about starting at a very concrete level, but then building that out to make it more abstract, to really make sure that arbitrary applicable relational responding is happening. And that's one of those phrases that when I first was like reading stuff for RFT, I was like, what does that even mean? Um, for the purposes of the podcast today, I'm not going to do like an RFT crash course, but I would recommend if there's any words I'm saying in this podcast or any other RFT things you listen to, to check out Foxy Learning's uh, RFT. They have a free tutorial on their website or you can pay and get CEs for it. So if you hear me saying words that you're confused about, check that out. He explains them really well. Eric Fox, um, wonderful course. So- and, I, and just to comment on that, I yeah. use that during my coursework at ODU and I love using that because I did learn um, using Foxy Learning. 
Good. Yeah. It, so. he's, he's one of the people, side note, um, he's a behavior analyst, but his PhD is in instructional design. So his courses are usually pretty well laid out because that's what he knows the most about is how to design courses. So that's I've always loved what he puts out. Um, so getting back to like how this affects things with like the work that I was doing, I work in the field of autism, but this would be true if you're working in any field where like you're trying to work on helping people acquire more typical, I'm using quotes, language development. So maybe people who've had strokes, uh, Alzheimer's, to, um, traumatic brain injury, other uh, language, you know, diagnoses of like language disabilities, anything like that, this would be applicable to, but I'm talking about autism. What tends to happen is our clients wrote memorize things and they don't engage in derived responding. So it makes it that much more obvious to see that as a skill deficit, to see it as an operant that needs to be trained. If you're working with typical language learners, what may not be, uh, it may not be as apparent, but when you're working with children diagnosed with autism, who typically language-wise, at least 50% of the cases we work with, they really only have the language that we've explicitly taught them. And you compare that to their typical peers and you see that huge difference and you see that something's missing and you can't quite place your finger on what it is that you need to do. Like they're not, you know, we're doing all of this intensive instruction and they're getting the words we're teaching them, but that burst that tends to happen at the age of two for, again, quotes, typical language learners is not happening for this person, this child that you're working with. And for me, as a practitioner, it wasn't until I had materials available from people who took the research and created practitioner materials like Peak and uh, Fit Learning has their own materials as well. I've seen them present. We don't get to access those unless you're a Fit Learning site, but they do share quite a bit in their presentations. And when you see those amazing programs and they're very, very, very well designed. So I was, um, until I had those at my fingertips, I wasn't um, able to comprehensively address this huge gap in the advancement in language and cognition. So all of those areas, uh, that we really need to start helping our clients to engage in. We need to get them engaging in derived relational responding from the get. That's something we need to know about what it is and how to focus on it from the very first day of intervention, even at the age of two, because typically developing one-year-olds can you they, they engage in derived relational responding. So I've heard, and I'll, I'll get into this in a little bit, but I've heard, you know, people who haven't really read a whole lot in relational frame theory or looked at the materials out there say, well, you know, verbal behavior already looks at that. There's generativity, there's matrix training, there's multiple, um, multiple sources of control, um, joint control, all of that kind of stuff. But where can I buy? Where can I buy that? <laughs> it's not in the VB map. It's not in the ABLES. Kent Johnson has a book on generativity. That's about as close as you're going to get as a practitioner to being able to incorporate any of those types of things into the work that you're doing. So that's my um, kind of just like, how did RFT come into the picture for me? And then I'll talk some more about that. But first I wanna pause and see what thoughts or questions you have, Joe. Yeah, like, um, so I know uh, there might be people out there that are just getting, um, just learning about RFT can you provide like a, just a short definition of what RFT is? Sure. So I'll do my lay person. Like this is how I talk about it definition, because again, even for me, I'm not like perfectly fluent with, with all of the pieces and, and the language. 
But basically it's the idea that there are, the language that we use, we use it in ways of looking at how words relate to one another, just like the like relational frame theory, just like it sounds. <laughs> so we don't use language in a vacuum. It's not an isolation. Our understanding of language is based on its relation to other parts of language and our learning history. Um, so for example, and then I'll give you a better definition, but for example, we were talking, there's a, a thing I've been talking about in the peak trainings, but uh, Trevor Noah has this uh, comedy routine that's on YouTube. And he's talking about how weird Americans use of the English languages. And he goes into our abbreviations and like, how did we come up with these? And he talks about pounds, L-B-S. What? What in the world? Like, how did you come up with that, right? <laughs> so for someone who's not from like an American English speaker, if they see the abbreviation LBS, that has no history for them. No, like the only relation they have with that would just be those letters. And they may read it as, you know, I would like one LBS of sugar, please. And like not even know, like it would have no <laughs> meaning for them beyond just seeing those three letters together. Whereas someone in America who's uh, used to that abbreviation, it has a ton of meaning. It has a meaning for, you know, amount of something you're going to buy and understanding what, like, you could kind of visualize what a pound is when you see, when you see LBS and you want a pound of sugar, you can picture that, right? Yeah. But it could also have a lot of negative meaning too. Like, say you're struggling with losing weight and you see the LBS abbreviation, that can bring up for you a whole lot of stuff right? A whole lot yeah. of negative emotions and thoughts and all sorts of things about yourself that like no one from any other country would experience because they don't have that history with that, those three letters. And even for, you know, a toddler, even a four or five-year-old, maybe it has, even if they're living in America, no meaning for them as well, because that, that abbreviation has never been related to anything else. Right. So that's my like new favorite example of it, but I, I will share um, just because, like I said, I like the Foxy Learning course so much and the way that they describe it. So this is directly from their website. So if you go to foxylearning.com and you go to the RFT course, it says relational frame theory is a behavioral account of human language and cognition that emerged primarily from converging lines of research on rule-governed behavior and derived stimulus relations. It is an extension of B.F. Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior in some respects, but also directly challenges some of the basic tenets of that analysis. More importantly, it has drastic implications for how we conduct the science of human behavior. As it explains how stimulus functions can be altered in ways that are not directly predictable from a traditional contingency analysis. RFT provides a framework for an analysis of complex human behavior and serves as a basis of promising new interventions in applied behavior analysis. And he references PEAK and clinical psychology, and he references acceptance and commitment therapy. And then he goes on to explain like what the tutorial covers. The, the piece there where he's talking about um, explains how stimulus functions can be altered in ways that are not directly predictable, that pulls in what I was talking about with that pounds um, example. So like when you're a little child and you first see that abbreviation like in math class and you learn that LBS means pounds, that's your only history with it. But then say like you go on to become a teenager and you get an eating disorder. And now there's going to be a whole lot of stuff that comes up when you see that abbreviation LBS that no one could predict. If I was your behavior analyst and I didn't know about your eating disorder or that previous history and I was trying to like even do a math worksheet for with you, for example, and you saw that LBS and then started ripping your paper up. 
I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to necessarily predict that it's around your past history with your eating disorder, right? So it really opens up such a wider array of variables that we have to consider. And it goes beyond that stimulus response consequence, direct learning contingency that we're all trained on. Thank you. That was a great example. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, that was funny too. Yeah. Um, did you have any other thoughts or questions for this part? No, I mean, you pretty much hit on everything that I, I was having questions about. Like for me, like as a practitioner, I was like, where are the resources that I can use with my, um, my clients I have now? And there's not really a whole bunch out there. Yeah. So yeah. definitely the Foxy Learning course, um, obviously peak because it just, especially I'm not, I don't benefit. I don't make any money off of peak <laughs> book selling. So in case anybody's wondering, but the peak books, even if like you are trying to prioritize and you don't have a really big budget, getting the equivalence and transformation books. And even if you can only get one, get the transformation book so that you can start working on those relational frames and really getting, because the transformation book does include sameness. So you get some stimulus equivalence within the transformation book. But those are really the only resources available to us right now. I think um, Siri Ming might've just published a book with Josh, um, with Hedgehog Publishing, but I forget what the exact topic is. I'm pretty sure it's around RFT, but it might be more act related. So those are kind of the best bets. And then trying to get mentors essentially who um, even if you can't find one, you should, there's enough resources available just within peak alone that you could at least start exposing your clients and getting some progress being made on developing derived relational responding as an operant for them while you're still learning yourself. That's one of the things that's kind of, I don't even have it in the notes for today, but it, people tend to hold back and wait until they've fully mastered something and of course, there are times where you would definitely need to do that if there's like a danger of challenging behavior increasing or something like that. But when it comes to language learning, you've got to understand most of the stuff we're trained to do, even if you know it well, is it coming from research? It's coming from people's histories and the work they were doing with children. Where are the studies on the VBMAP? Where are the studies on the ABLES? Where are the studies on verbal behavior model programs? They don't exist. The VBMAP and the ABLES finally after 20 years, have some studies demonstrating like that kids can master stuff in there, but that's it. And verbal behavior, there's, there's a whole journal and there's studies to show that the operants exist, but the verbal behavior model that so many people use, there's not a study out there on that. So if you're okay with using those things, and I'm not saying stop doing that, we all have a mixture as practitioners of using things that our own data is indicating is effective and it's based in behavioral science keep doing that but don't hold back on learning new stuff and applying new stuff just because it's new to you and you're uncomfortable with it um, there's actually more research for autism with relational frame theory than any of the other stuff in our field right now um, that we were using from verbal behavior when it came out yet nobody had a problem with applying the verbal behavior stuff when when that was first coming into play so I guess I don't understand the head because I guess they think it's because it's so new and so different that a lot of people just don't. But if you watch something like the Foxy learning tutorial and that's what you focus on first, 
it would be similar to when I first learned about verbal behavior. My first exposure to it was seeing Carbone. It wasn't reading mm -hmm. Skinner's book. Oh my gosh, I would have run for the fields if that was the case, <laughs> right? So you have to look at, like, if you're a practitioner, see the practitioners presenting on it and their resources. Don't go to the theoretical stuff until you've understood the applied practical side of it and you're motivated to understand the theoretical <laughs> stuff. That's a great suggestion. I mean, I know in um, schools around here um, where I live in Virginia Beach, we have used a uh, VB map and ABLES. And I would like to see like more resources for teachers um, and BCBAs as well in the school systems with uh, RFT. Yeah. So. It definitely is needed. So speaking of <laughs> using the VB map and the ABLES, the next piece of my musings is relating to that whole like RFT or VB and like people saying like, I'm from one camp or the other. And, I, and my confusion over why, like, why does that exist? Why is that a thing in a field of science? So my thoughts on that and my experience with the giants in our field that have done so much amazing work developing so many incredible interventions, at least for what was disseminated to me as a practitioner, the difference with the work being done in relational frame theory for practitioners is that I now have a way to help build that derived relational responding. Whereas with the materials that existed from people who aren't incorporating relational frame theory, such as the VB map or the ABLES, there's nothing practitioner related to this, maybe in their own work, like maybe at STARS that Sunberg and Partington have in California, had in California, um, they had stuff there. Because I've had people tell me they did. But that was never disseminated to us as practitioners. Like, I can't use that. If you look at the book published in the late 90s, there's no way any of this stuff was incorporated in there. Uh, by Sundberg and Partington on teaching language to children with autism because we didn't know <laughs> that stuff then. So there's, it's not possible that it, it exists there. Even the VB map manual, when you look at the, the stuff in there, that's not, it's not in there either. So they very well have known these things and called them different things, but that doesn't help me as a practitioner. If it's only in your brain or in the work you're doing with the clients you have, that does nothing to benefit the larger array of practitioners that are out there. So with verbal behavior and the work that's being done um, there that was disseminated to practitioners through things like the ABLES and the VB map, it gave me as a practitioner the ability to improve how I was functionally looking at language. And then relational frame theory, the, the few practitioner-related materials that exist now with PEAK and the Foxy Learning Course and a few others, that gave me the ability to improve making sure that I'm comprehensively addressing the aspects of language being taught and providing my learner with opportunities to engage in derived responding. And if they're not engaging in that, how to train it. So if they're not pulling from their past history to come up with new responses, how do we teach them to do that? It's not magic. It's an operant. We can train it. We can prompt it. We can reinforce it. So it seems to me from talking to people that don't necessarily know anything about relational frame theory, but who are experts in the field of behavior analysis and learning, um, especially if they're more from like, they're really, really well, well versed in verbal behavior. Um, everyone seems to value these things and agrees that these are skills that need to be taught. So everyone agrees that learners need to be able to engage in generative behavior. They need to engage and drive relational responding and um, apply from their history, new responses. However, <laughs> um, 
they, um, they've come up with their own strategies for doing this that are almost identical to one another. So like, there is like, if you go to Morningside and see what Kent Johnson's doing with generativity, or I'm sure I haven't been to the stars clinic, but I'm sure if I went there and the work that they were doing there, especially with like joint control, I watched Sunberg, um, Carl and Mark Sunberg do a presentation in Indiana several years ago at HABA. And they were presenting on stuff like this, like think aloud problem solving and teaching like contextual cues and all of that kind of stuff but without a focus on the relational frames, which I still think is what's missing. But either way, they had, and they were like, this is data from the early 2000s. We just never got around to publishing it. And I'm watching their procedures and their videos and what they were doing, and I'm like, but why? <laughs> like, <laughs> disseminate that to us. How can we improve what we're doing if that's not disseminated to us? And that's fine. Like, I understand researchers are busy, and if you don't get a chance to disseminate it, but somebody else does, rather than criticize them for using different words or trying to claim you did it first, just come together on it. Um, so that's kind of where like my hot, uh, hot soapbox comes in with this. I just don't really understand um, how it came to be that there's this like RFT versus VB and like us versus them kind of mentality happening. I know there's a history of it. I'm sure many people from ABAI and whatnot can tell us about all of that, especially when Steve Hayes was first researching things um, and Linda Hayes and um, Barn, Barnes Holmes. Um, but I don't need to know that history. <laughs> I'm in 2019 and I think egos need to be set aside. People's histories of I've always done it this way or I already knew it, but I'll call it this. It doesn't do anything to benefit the populations that we're trying to serve. The podcast that Matt did with Dr. Pritchard and Dr. Palmer was very encouraging because they had a professional and positive conversation between one another but I didn't hear a lot of synthesizing, of pulling together what each one was saying and how that could benefit the work that we're doing. I also didn't hear either of them really disagreeing with one another. I heard Josh, Dr. Pritchard, uh, do a little bit of synthesis of what Palmer was saying about his topics by saying things like, yes, of course, we would agree with that. This is uh, what I would add kind of thing. So, you know, that they're, they weren't differing on like some basic level stuff, but then Josh had things to add to it. Um, however, so, you know, that was encouraging, but more of that needs to be happening. Synthesizing each person's experience with these topics into a more comprehensive approach. When I hear different people from the different camps talk about this every single time, all I can think about is why is you're not from different camps? Why is this a debate? Why is this a discussion? Why are people saying, I don't need to know anything about relational frame theory. And then sometimes getting to the point of bashing one another thinking that like one camp is better than the other. I just don't see what benefit that provides to the field and especially to the clients that we're trying to serve. I totally agree. I mean, I, as a practitioner and being uh, new into the field, I just want to do what's best for my clients and to do what's best for these families I'm working with. And I, I mean, being in education, Teamwork is a huge component of um, our practice, and we always strive to uh, work together to see what we can do to best serve our, our students. And I feel like in this field that, I mean, our field that we need to do the same thing. Yes. So I, yeah. we need to just come together, work together, and figure out, what's the best course of action and how we can provide resources for our, um, for everyone in our field to dissect, uh, dis um, 
disseminate and uh, just use it, just use for our clients. Yes, definitely agree. I'm curious, especially being newer to the field, because I can't quite remember, but I'm sure I could think of some things. <laughs> if it was confusing for you at all, um, if you were exposed to any of these kind of differences of opinion or different camps, like, I don't know if you were or not, but when you were studying or anything, like, was it confusing at all when you encountered RFT or saw any of the things about like, oh, you don't need to know about that or anything like that? It was confusing because it, it was interesting because I was still in my coursework while working as an RBT for navigation and I, I was getting exposed to peak and I was like, what about RFT? And no one was like, oh, you don't need to know that. I'm like, why not? Why, why can't I learn as much as possible that could potentially benefit our field or yeah. benefit me as a practitioner? Um, it's, it is very confusing. Yeah. Um, and there's so much information out there to um, just to – um, read and learn that's and being new I only have so much time to go through all the articles um, to go to conferences um, and it's just a lot of information and I want and but I want to learn more and know what's the best course of action right yep and I think that that's where kind of maybe we could do a different podcast at some point talking about that progression of resources when you're wanting to learn something new. How do you do that? What's the best yeah. course of action? So we need to note that down. But yeah. I agree. And one of the things that I was thinking about as we were talking about this is just my experiences with a few people that I really looked up to and still do in the field. But when whether it was RFT or, or some other things that maybe they didn't have as much background with their reactions were more just like to shove those things aside, very condescending. And it, I think as a mentor or someone with more experience, especially if you're a professor at a university, the response should more just be, oh, that's not something I've studied. You know, here are some resources as opposed to like, ah, oh, you don't need to know that. That's a bunch of, you know, crap. Like it's, those people are just crazy. They're just studying weird stuff or <laughs> they're reinventing the wheel and making up new names for stuff. Like, is, isn't it our job, whether I'm not a professor, I could be, but I do supervise and mentor a lot of people. And if that was the type of response I gave to like things that they were wanting to know about that are based in behavioral science, I can understand if maybe it was, you know, some sort of like mystical, non-scientific <laughs> thing that they were wanting to learn about. I might give a little bit more input on that. But when it's something from our field, just because you don't have expertise in it doesn't give you the right to like put it down. Um, and then, you, then, you know, your students or your mentees or your trainees don't end up learning about it then. And they may even go forward and continue to push like different myths and misconceptions as well, because they were never fully taught it either. And then of course that just sets everything back in terms of the amazing work we could do with our clients. And they're the ones that ultimately suffer. I think that's sometimes missed too. I think when people have these types of conversations, that bigger picture of like, who is this ultimately impacting? It may not feel great on your ego, but like who's ultimately suffering from your disagreements and your failure to like work together on figuring these complex things out. Yes, um, definitely. Okay, so 
um, that's my rant on that. One of the other things that came up in the talk, um, which is kind of a, a even longer rant, <laughs> was this concept of macro versus micro. So you kind of have to listen to the podcast and, um, and like hear them talk about it. But, um, or like there's molar and molecular, whichever, however you want to say it, but like, um, we'll kind of talk about it in more detail. So when I listened, uh, to this conversation, um, with Dr. Palmer and with Dr. Pritchard about that whole, you know, molar versus molecular macro versus micro, I, what I really would love to see is some sort of flow chart or decision tree. So Dr. Palmer mentioned numerous times macro versus micro or molar versus molecular. I know a lot of other people when I ask them about this, especially relational frame theory, people that have a lot of um, understanding of relational frame theory, they have this similar discussion. They'll say one is macro, which would be relational frame. One is micro, which would be verbal behavior or problem solving. And as Dr. Palmer referred to, um, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive in the work that we do, but it's not natural. Like it's not mutually exclusive either in terms of macro versus micro. It's kind of like nature versus nurture. It's not nature versus nurture. It's both, but they're interacting with one another. So it shouldn't be macro versus micro or molar versus molecular. Having a basic understanding of both macro and micro or molar and molecular and incorporating that with your clients is what would ultimately be best to make you the best practitioner. And I don't just mean with language development, I mean with everything that we do, whether it's functional analysis or language development or any of the other skills that we're trying to address, approaching something from like one or the other and refusing to like acknowledge the existence of um, the one that you're not using is going to do a disservice, it, it just is. So, um, so I kind of wanted to talk about that concept a little bit. Did you have any thoughts you want to share before I dive further into examples with that? Yeah, it took me like seven times to listen to the podcast to really get a good grasp of what they were saying. Um, for me, as a practitioner, I want to have a firm understanding of both the micro and macro level. Um, because I feel like if you're heavy on just one side, um, you're not going to be the most effective practitioner. Right. And for me, that, that's, that's where I, I was kind of confused. I was like, why, why can't we just do, I mean, focus on both, you know? You right. Know? Yep. So, and that's kind of what I, like what my thoughts were too. So if we're only looking through one lens, say macro, um, or we're only looking through micro, we're going to be missing things from the, from the macro side you would miss things from the micro side. You may dive more deeply than you need to trying to like figure out why and problem solve and all this stuff and lose out on precious time that you could have been implementing an intervention. So um, bringing in Hanley's work, not to like kind of shift gears, but it's basically what's going on with the work he's doing. We can approach our functional analysis from that micro or sorry, from the macro level. And that gives you an effective intervention and you can get into place um, and help this kid have pro-social behaviors while reducing challenging behavior as quickly as possible. But if you're insisting on going to that micro level, the traditional functional analysis where you have to really get it down to the bone, what you think the ultimate function is and isolate a function, um, just merely out of the fact that that's the history we have and saying like you really have to pinpoint down what the exact variable is that's controlling this child's behavior, in some cases, depending on how complex the behavior is and how complex the maintaining variables are, you could spend weeks, if not months, trying to get to that mm -hmm. point. And all the while, this individual is continuing to engage in challenging behavior. 
and maybe engaging in it at higher rates as you try your different analyses and figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. When ultimately it's possible if you had looked at it from that macro level, from synthesizing based on the interview and addressed it, um, you would be, it's going to sound weird, but you're almost like more comprehensively addressing it at the macro level because you're looking at that bigger picture. This child, um, you're looking at how they're operating in the natural environment with all the various variables that are affecting them and not trying to like whittle it down to this very like kind of, um, laboratory type situation. So if you, if you focus too much on that micro level piece, then the child's missing out on that positive intervention that you could have had in place um, while you were doing all of that analysis. So what I would say, again, research is needed on this, but from like a practitioner side of things and the work that I've seen come out of Hanley's lab, if you can um, pinpoint an intervention at the macro level, get it into place, meaning if you have, if you were working with clients where there's a clear synthesized contingency happening, they're trying to escape to get access to demands or like they're, you know, wanting their way all of the time. And like, as soon as you try to do something different from how they're doing it, they engage in challenging behavior or they have skill deficits relating to tolerance behaviors. Like they don't tolerate, no, they don't tolerate give, they don't tolerate waiting. Work on that stuff, like address those things. And once you're, you've got them in a better place, some of that challenging behavior may not even exist anymore. But if it still does, then you would dive in with a more macro look at things and you would problem solve and troubleshoot. So using that as like an example of something else that I'm just kind of familiar with and other listeners might be familiar with, I would say that the same would apply for language development or any skill that we're trying to work on. This is, again, my interpretation as a practitioner, develop your programs at that macro level. And then even after just a few trials, if you don't see progress, then you need to know how to dig deeper and go micro. So um, I'll give an example with that. But before I do, did you have any thoughts? No, you have done a great job with uh, hitting exactly how I felt after listening to that um, interview on uh, macro micro cell. Okay, because I, I'll tell you until I listen to that interview, um, Ryan O'Donnell especially would like bring up, he usually says molar and molecular, but he would bring it up all the time. And I just like had no clue what was going on. <laughs> but then it was nice because Dave and Josh both gave examples and I was like, oh, I got this now. I understand yeah. what they mean. So <laughs> anyway, so looking at it from like that relational frame theory situation with like relational frame theory being macro and verbal behavior being micro. So if someone understands relational frame theory and they're a top-notch expert on it, but they don't know how to problem solve or troubleshoot, when a learner is not making a lot of progress with that macro approach with just trying to teach them, you know, with the frames and using a stimulus equivalence framework, um, that's not going to do you a whole lot of good as a practitioner. It won't mean anything. All you know how to do is like apply these like broad level programs to try to build these relational frames. But conversely, if you're only looking at language through the micro level of why is this happening? So like, what's the function like that really, you know, small piece, like, is it a man? Does it attack? Is it interverbal? What's their conditioned learning history and all of that kind of stuff. You could be wasting a lot of time if you're spending all of your time really digging in to why, um, when you have a learner who's really advanced and their why is because they don't have a macro exposure to language. Nobody's taught them relational frames or tried to help them engage and derive relational responding. Um, so basically you could be wasting time because you could have put your macro programming into place, 
you could be flying through targets with them and you're not because you're too, too close in too much whittling things down to that micro approach. Um, the other thing that's an issue with the micro approach, which it's kind of funny that I was able to even think of all of these issues because this is where I live and love. <laughs> it's like skill <laughs> acquisition programming. I am a problem solver barriers to learning. I want to know why, what's going on. Why is this child not have the skill? Um, but one of the other issues with it is that, um, Oh, well, just to, in case listeners don't know, most of the clients I work with right now, that's why I'm working with them. They have micro level issues that I'm helping to address, but they also have the macro level issues as well. But most of our time is spent on these micro level issues. Um, and I'm one of the few people that can analyze the micro level well enough for them to have an effective intervention in place. But the piece that I would be missing if I didn't have this macro understanding is it's huge. Um, so at least in this example, what language development is, the whole concept of relational frames. So when I'm developing my programming and I'm choosing my programs to work on, if I'm only working on matching, imitation, receptive and expressive ID, around the standard content that focuses on sameness and then feature function class, which is typically what is trained, especially for early learners, I'm probably going to make the language development problems worse because I'm not equally exposing the frames and developing a history for my learners of those other frames of relating and responding to other contextual cues, like different opposite comparisons. Without relational frame theory, I would have like taught them those things eventually, but I would have looked at them more from like a vocabulary or grammar type perspective of all they need to understand is what opposite means. Like just vocabulary wise, this is what opposite means because that's a typical skill that comes online at some point. I wouldn't have understood it from the language development perspective of all of the research that has taken place within relational frame theory of looking at how does our understanding of opposites come to be an arbitrary applicable responding framework. I probably would have been making problems worse because while I'm doing hundreds of thousands of training trials on sameness, essentially with all of the matching that we do, matching letters, numbers, colors, shapes, items, common items, preferred items, people, places, um, <laughs> WH questions I've even seen matching with, and I've done it myself. There's so much matching. And when, all of, when we do all of that, we're just building a stronger and stronger repertoire relating to sameness without building any of those other relational networks. Um, and then when we try to teach opposite or different or hierarchies or perspective taking, we're fighting against our really rich history of just the relational network of sameness. So someone could have a really good background in verbal behavior and a micro level analysis, but if that's all they have and they're missing that bigger macro picture of how to you know, develop programming based on relational frames and how higher order language develops, they're not going to develop their programming as comprehensively as they could if they had that micro level understanding. So again, it's not an either or situation. We need to be training practitioners to be understanding when to look at things from the macro level and how to understand things at the micro level and know when to analyze things at the micro level as well. Um, with language development in particular so far, what I've gathered from the trainings I've done just by going to see um, fit learning and really diving in deep with peak. And I did the summer teacher Institute at Morningside where they look at generative responding literature. That's really improved my abilities to help create derived relational responding for my clients and have this combo macro micro experience for them. But there's a lot of literature, especially in generative responding 
generative responding <laughs> that I'm not as familiar with that I probably should be. However, my clients have been making really amazing progress. And as it stands right now, um, I just, I, it's time allocation. So I haven't been as motivated to learn about those things. That doesn't mean I shouldn't be. It doesn't mean I won't. I'm just trying to recognize that as a practitioner, when we're looking at these things, especially if we're running, um, if we're trying to get more into that macro level, it would behoove us to have resources available for practitioners similar to Peak, similar to the VB Map, similar to the Ables, similar to Dr. Partington and Dr. Sundberg's book from the late 90s that I would imagine most people haven't even read from the current generation of behavior analysts. Like I was required to read it in graduate school. Were you required to read it, Joe? Um, you would probably remember if you did. It's like pretty yeah. thick, easy to understand, but lots about how to teach using verbal behavior operants and motivation. I believe I did. Okay, that's good. I, yeah. So um, a lot of the people I supervise don't even know what I'm talking about when I bring <laughs> that up. So, um, and just the same, like a lot of people haven't read the EIBI books either because they're from the 90s. They haven't even read Let Me Hear Your Voice. They haven't read a lot of the older stuff and they should. Or new stuff needs to come out that's updated for you know where the research is at this time. Um, but anyway, we need more of that kind of stuff um, that provides practitioners with the piece, the how-to piece of this. The um, how is this valuable for you? Instead of me needing to go into Java and all of the other behavior analytic journals, um, and yes, as a behavior analyst, I need to stay up to date on the literature and I do, but there's only so much time <laughs> in a day to read all of those articles and I can't be an expert on everything. And the delay from submission to publication can be rather long. So just realistically, as a practitioner, the things that are most valuable to me that are most likely to get incorporated into my intervention process are the things created for practitioners, are the people who are more academic in nature that take the time to synthesize the literature and put resources out there for practitioners to use. Hanley's been doing that with the work he's done with the research they've been doing on functional analysis and addressing challenging behavior. And yes, we could all read all of those articles again, but we're likely not going to have time <laughs> to read all of them. <laughs> so they've created useful practitioner materials on their website so people can take that information and start using it with their clients. And it might be because I'm a seasoned professional at this point. We'll have to talk about this when I'm done with my rant. Um, <laughs> but I can take all of that and quickly apply it if needed. So the, all of the stuff that Hanley's put out, I can read that, digest it, and like have new resources to use with my clients. Um, a lot of it's stuff I've already been doing. So um, it's not even necessarily in addition to my repertoire, but people who are newer to the field now have a resource they could use and dig deeper if they needed to. So we get into, again, at that macro versus micro level, the resources. The resources he's putting out there for the practitioner would be macro. And if they need to troubleshoot to further understand what's going on for a client, they might have to dig into that micro level and look into the research, not just what Hanley's been doing, but even more research. So I hope this doesn't come across as that I'm saying we shouldn't be looking at research, but we also have to recognize that as practitioners, we have different time allocations. So there's more things that exist that are easy and ready to go for practitioners with the understanding that we use these things and individualize them and dig deep as needed. The work we do overall is going to improve and will be more effective. And of course, the ABLES and the VBMAP, um, the verbal behavior approach and the books put out initially by you know, folks from the verbal behavior side of things, all of those books are exactly the same as well. They were based on these individuals' experience in conducting research in these areas 
working for a long time as practitioners, and then they were put out there for others to implement and incorporate. So, you know, what we've learned and where science has gone since those books were initially published in the early late 90s, early 2000s, it's 20 years later, <laughs> stuff has <laughs> happened. So why, like, why do we not have like peak is the only thing really that's been published since then that's like advanced our understanding of language that's absolutely asinine. I just, I can't, I don't understand. And then when we try to use that kind of stuff, um, the people who initially were the, the groundbreakers that published on verbal behavior are criticizing it. And I just don't understand. So, um, Joe. Yeah. I don't like lots of things I just said there, but one that I definitely want to make sure we touch on when you see that stuff, like the stuff that Hanley's put out, or if you look at things like peak that are more practitioner focused, yes, there's a lot you'll like read and then be like, Oh, I need to go learn more about this. But is it, how easy is it to digest as someone who's like newer to the field? It, for me, it's really difficult because okay. there's so much out there and I'm, I mean, and there's so much I still need to learn as well. Um, like, I feel like, I mean, I know for a fact, I will never stop learning in this field, which I'm happy about, but yep. I also want to be, <laughs> I also want to be, um, I want to get to a point where um, I am just applying of what I have learned very quickly with all my clients. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing too, like having that certain level of fluency where there's like your, that again, sort of more of like a macro overarching. Mm -hmm. I know that's not the exact definition with like the RFTVB comparison, but just to not, um, doing like a, uh, metaphor. I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, but you know, thinking about like, you'll have these like kind of frameworks and like broad things that you're really fluent with, but then you're going to need when those things don't work to be able to troubleshoot that or going in from the beginning and like you have your stuff you're fluent with and noticing yeah. at the beginning, well, this stuff's not going to work. What else can I do instead? And, and so you don't waste time there either. Yeah. Um, so it might be, that could be another show topic as well as kind of that discussion. Again, for me, when I read that kind of stuff now, it's pretty easy. So maybe it takes having like a more seasoned BCBA kind of mentor those types mm -hmm. of things for, for the students or the newer BCBAs. But if it didn't exist, then how would I even teach you about that? Right? Like if peak exactly. didn't exist or if the Foxy learning course didn't exist, I'm not going to read, like if you and I sat down and read <laughs> a relational frame theory article, we'd both be just as confused probably because that's not my area of expertise. I can't be yeah. an expert in everything. And then again, our clients would suffer. Yes. All exactly. right. And that's, and that's um, so crucial to uh, understand is that, you know, just because I have an article doesn't make me an expert either. Right. And yep. I, we need those materials just to uh, continue to progress in this field. Yes, exactly. So we're in the home stretch. I know I've been doing a lot of musing, um, but basically like big picture, um, what does this mean for practitioners ultimately? <laughs> so, what I'm trying to say here in a very long way, it's been like 45 minutes or longer, is that it's interesting to me that there's all of this research that's been done on generative responding. So naming, matrix training, relational frame theory, the Morningside model of generative instruction. Why are people fighting against each other? We all agree that this is a phenomena that occurs in <laughs> learning. It happens. Um, but people are fighting against each other trying to say, oh, that's just the same as naming or that's just the same as this. Why not put 
why don't we just put something together for practitioners to help summarize this work and get it out there for us to be incorporating with our clients as opposed to the few people who've done the research just knowing it in their heads and in the places where they work. Um, some of my favorite articles are from behavior analysis and practice. So like I'm picturing, you know, even a behavior analysis and practice type article on this from each of the experts working together instead of fighting with each other and having, you know, their article about VB and then there's the response to that article about VB or vice versa. Like that doesn't <laughs> benefit us as practitioners. Um, so definitely if that never existed and if I encountered a client where I'm having issues, of course, I'd be diving into the literature and I'd be looking at each of those different things and figuring out how that information could benefit my client. So I'd, you know, go in a search for resources to help me, but especially, um, ultimately, especially for people who may not be as inclined to do that or are even aware of the existence of these things, having something for practitioners that synthesizes all of this information, all of the work that's been done on language development and in typical language development as well. Um, would be really beneficial. So the work that Martha, Martha Pelez has done, um, and there's other people that I haven't even mentioned yet, but don't necessarily fall in the verbal behavior relational frame theory camp. When talking about autism, specifically like Amy Weatherby, Sally Rogers, Geraldine Dawson, um, looking more for that developmental perspective of language too. That might be asking a bit too much. Like if we could <laughs> at least get one from the behavior analyst, I'd be happy. Um, but we need to like draw to looking at like having this all synthesized in one spot where it could be a seminal article that we can read and sort of learn about all of these different things. Um, Dr. Sundberg presented a keynote at FABA last year and there were various aspects of it that I took, um, did, didn't necessarily agree with that I wrote a little note about and put on <laughs> Facebook. But one of the things that he did do a great job of was he had a slide that sort of summarized all of that different generative responding research. So something like that, like from his slide, all of the different things that are out there on how, what we know about typical language development and generative, um, generative responding derived relational responding, having that all in one place. So if I, if I want to use matrix training with a client or I want to incorporate the research that's been done on naming, I can do that instead of having to go and like find a bunch of different resources for that. Um, so let's see, instead of having all of these supposedly different debate situations and encouraging, I'd rather encourage them to put together something, whether it's on their own, um, so there's like a naming group with something and a matrix training group with something and an RFT group with something, or the best of all worlds would even be like a whole book, not just a BAP article. Um, but it, you know, having that information from each of these individuals so that we as pr practitioners can have better tools to use and can more quickly help our clients. So what do you think, Joe, would that be helpful to have something that like synthesizes all of these various theories and, um, the research done in the, this, these areas on language development? For me, yes. I mean, I I would love just one resource where the giants in our field would just come together and work on this one project that'd be like, here, this is something that we put together that we put a lot of time into to help you do better in your uh, as a BCBA. And that's that's the whole purpose of our field is to um, to continue continually to get better um and provide resource i mean like provide services to our clients so then they can um thrive as right. an individual yep 
there, and there's, I mean, you could attest to how you've said it several times as we've talked on the podcast, but just how much stuff there is to learn, <laughs> you know, getting that historical perspective as well as like the, you know, groundbreaking research that's being done and everything in between. Yeah. I mean, like there's a lot of information and, um, when I, when I went through my coursework, I thought, you know, in my Cooper book, like I, there was a lot of information in that. Then once I, um, passed my boards, then it's like the doors just open wide and there's just a vast amount of information. Yeah. And it's like, what do you, what do I focus on first? And that's why I still struggle is like, what do I, you know, pay attention to first? And I, I like, I would love to learn more about RFT and, um, I would love to learn about more about verbal behavior, but I also have to, uh, I really want to focus on supervision and coaching and, um, billing codes. I mean, that's <laughs> something brand new to me. Like I never had to worry about is like billing codes and I'm like, yeah. just all this information all at once. So it, I'm just taking a little bit of time every night just to read something. Um, or just to um, watch online, just to, you know, help me out. Yeah. Yep. So we have two more rants left. Do you think we can do it? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. In the I mean, podcast. Suggestions for those uh, new practitioners out there, like what, what could they do to um, focus on a topic or what could they do to continually to learn without being feeling like without feeling overwhelmed yeah so i don't i do think we could do a whole episode on that but like just from my own history basically what i did is i would go to conferences and i would try to go to talks on things i hadn't heard about before mm -hmm. and i would ask fortunately i was exposed to a lot of different mentors so i would ask for their input as well i was also really lucky uh faba always has really great speakers so the keynotes there seeing them from the early on in my career and then just kind of following them at conferences and, and going to see their talks was really helpful. So that was my, how I sort of narrowed down and shifted, but it was always every few months I'd be focusing on something new or sometimes, you know, more, more than a few months, but seeing that initial presentation from someone doing the research to me is the most helpful because they're presenting to you the key things that they're discovering right now. And then based off of that, you can decide if you need to go backwards and dive into like their previous research and learn some stuff, or if you just need to stay on top of the work they're doing now and continue to follow that and incorporate it into your work. So that, and of course, there's so many opportunities now. You don't have to even physically go to conferences. There's the podcast, there's webinars, um, you know, there's... Um, Ryan O'Donnell, who uh, does live streaming. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's like all sorts of options now. I... Definitely recommend varying the conferences, looking at when you decide what conferences to go to or pay for to attend, who's presenting, not like obviously support your local um, behavior analytic chapters and things like that. But I went, I've been to Hoosier ABA, I've been to Kentucky ABA, I've been to Virginia ABA, I've been to Ohio ABA, Florida numerous times. I've gone to the autism conferences that ABAI does. I've done um, APBA. So uh, the precision teaching conferences, some education conferences. So I don't go to like the same circuit over and over and just network and party the whole time. Like that's a component that a lot of people enjoy about conferences, but I go looking to see, you know, 
who's presenting. I had someone email me recently, like what conferences should they try to go to this year? And I'm like, that is impossible for me to tell you <laughs> until they publish who's speaking, because that's how I decide if a conference, that's the one I'm going to go to or not. And early on in my career, I could only go to one or two a year if I was lucky. Now I am a little bit more flexible with that. Um, but that's how I pick. I don't go just based on, you know, Oh, it's ABAI. That's the one I'm going to go to this year. Um, yeah. so I think again, we could probably do a whole different, uh, podcast. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, like that's where I'm at right now is like, which conference do I go to? I mean, I got Penn state, the, the autism conference that they have, they got Baba, you got Faba and it's just all different times, different lengths. And it's like, which one do I go to? And like, which one do I, yeah. um, one that I'm really looking forward to this year, but I won't be able to attend. And I don't even know if we'll have the podcast episode out before um, it happens, but it's the same weekend as FABA, Florida Association. Um, it's Morton Hoglin has been putting it on for a few years now in Ohio. It's the Effective yeah. Instruction Conference, September 17th to 19th. And they sent out the speakers and I was like, oh man, <laughs> I really would love to see that, but I'll be at FABA. Um, so, you know. Won't be yeah. able to do that one, but if anybody's listening that uh, we get this out before then, I highly recommend checking that one out for like stuff coming up in the fall and the Precision Teaching Conference as well. That's a nice like small one. This year it's in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, and then they kind of, they alternate. So every other year it's usually here in St. Petersburg and then it's in different locations. So, all right. Hey, Megan almost we're almost done with all of my rants so one there in the behavioral observations podcast episode uh with with dr palmer and uh with dr pritchard there was this discussion about a leprechaun and like if you were told um you know it should you trust the leprechaun with like your prized possessions like would a learner know to say yes or no and if they do how do they know how to do that and there was like this discussion back and forth about um about all of that. I'm not going to rehash it here. Listen to the episode to, to hear that example if you would like, but I would, I do want to share my thoughts on it. So, um, when I was listening to that discussion, I couldn't help but thinking that they were essentially saying the same thing, but also slightly different things. So in the same side of it, they were both saying if the child said the answer and could say why, then clearly reinforcement had happened. So they had a history that they were pulling from to answer those questions. So if the child said no, because leprechauns are tricky or leprechauns can't be trusted or something like that. Um, then you, you know that there's some sort of like reinforced history that they're going from. But what's different for me about that though, was the explanations given about like how that would happen. So Dr. Pritchard talked about transformation of stimulus function. He didn't necessarily use the terms, but he talked about it in some of the different frames that might be coming into play as well. And really having that understanding, that like bigger picture of that macro level understanding of like, it wasn't just a stimulus response consequence relationship. It wasn't just a direct contingency that did this. Palmer didn't really mention that. So for me as a practitioner, what that highlights is if I had a learner who couldn't answer that question and I needed it, um, you know, I needed to do training on this topic or I wanted to figure out why, why are they not answering? So I asked them, you know, would you trust a leprechaun with your prized possessions? And they didn't have an answer or they answered it incorrectly. And I wanted to know how to program for that so that, you know, if they're in like a reading class or a social thing or just mm -hmm. logic problem solving, if they could do it. Um, if I wanted to do that micro level analysis, 
Not understanding the relational frames and the relational networks and transformation of stimulus function is going to hamper my microanalysis because those are all things that I would need to be assessing as part of that analysis. So I would need to be looking at, does the learner have or engage in derived relational responses within the frame of opposite? Is the learner relating to things, to one another, and making those networks? So in order to go through all of those experiences, Josh talks about a bunch of different experiences in the podcast. Um, when you say the leprechaun, that brings forward these different experiences for you. And when you say tricky, and any of the different words around that scenario, that brings forward different experiences for us. But does that happen? for a learner that's diagnosed with autism or a different type of language um, disability. With a lot of the clients that we work with, that's not happening. They've only ever responded to rote memorization and explicitly trained events. So if nobody's ever explicitly trained relational connections, um, you might see this happen a little bit in like VB programs when they do feature function class and webbing and like how those things connect to one another. So an apple is red, and you eat it and it's a food and you're putting all of that together, but that's not sufficient enough. That's still just describing the item and not its relation to other things besides that it's a food. That's the only way, like it's a hierarchical relation. Um, so if you're looking, um, if you're not looking at that and that's a huge skill deficit and a huge operant missing for that learner, then whatever program you come up with isn't going to matter. They're still not going to make progress with those types of like, word problem, logic, problem solving activities. So if I don't understand relational frame theory enough, um, even though it's considered macro, when I'm trying to do my micro level analysis of like, this is a skill I wanna teach, how do I problem solve and troubleshoot and teach it? Um, that isn't going to come up as something that needs to be addressed. And I may, in my micro level analysis, figure out that the learner doesn't have a concept understanding of opposites vocabulary wise, but that doesn't mean uh, or I may, I may also figure out that they don't understand the concepts and meaning of tricky, or they don't know what a leprechaun is. So I could figure that out from a microanalysis, and maybe they just said no, but they have no idea what a leprechaun is. They've never been exposed to that. Nobody's ever trained them on that from the rope memorization standpoint. I could teach them the definitions of all those things. I could get them to tack a leprechaun. I can have them select different things that would meet the definition of tricky. But again, all of that's just rote memorization. So are they really understanding the concept of trickiness and how things can relate to tricky, or are they just memorizing? And they could give you a few examples of tricky, whatever ones you've explicitly trained, but when they encounter something new that happens to be tricky, would they derive that response and call that tricky? So if I don't have that macro level understanding of language that results from understanding practitioner relevant aspects of RFT, I would be doing a disservice to my client if I'm trying to teach overall operations of derived responding and my microanalysis would be affected. But there's a flip side. <laughs> so additionally, if I'm mostly focusing on that macro level side, so the aspects of RST give me with this same example, then I would miss things as well. If I'm not assessing things like motivation or attending or prop dependency or other cues in the environment that would be part of a microanalysis, all of which I don't actually think are discounted by people, Anybody I've met that like is from the relational frame theory camp, they still take those things into account. Although people will accuse them of not for whatever reason, I'm not really sure why. Um, but if for some reason I didn't, all I did was look at relational frame theory and, um, and just did that first and then I tried to problem solve, um, then I don't think we, we, it wouldn't go very well. So from my own practitioner, from my own experience as a practitioner, 
I'd be looking at that macro level first and then problem solve from there. And that gets back to that decision tree I was talking about. It would be nice to know like when is the most appropriate to micro um, level assess and like program and when is it best to micro to micro level assess and program. <laughs> it gets very confusing to say macro and micro over and over and over again. Um, but there's not really any guidance for us right now on that. So what I do is I do the macro first usually and then problem solve for there. So if someone was trying to determine what was going on with this leprechaun example, and they only looked at the relational frame theory aspect of that at that macro level, and there were micro level things going on for the learner in terms of why they didn't know this information. Even if there's a macro level deficit where um, somehow, or there's not a macro level deficit. So if there's somehow not a relational network issue, they engage in derived responses, but they still answered the question incorrectly. Um, if you're only looking at it from a relational frame perspective, from that macro level perspective, you're obviously going to be missing out on a lot of important information to help you develop an effective intervention for the learner. Again, <laughs> I haven't yet encountered someone from the relational side of things that would only look at relational networks are obviously going to be taking into account everything we know as behavior analysts. But I would say that some of the people I know in the field in general, whether it's verbal behavior or relational frame theory, whatever it is, there's, it's very rare to find people in our field right now that do really good micro level analyses. Steve Ward is probably the best in our field for that, that I've met. Um, but they've maybe um, really just developed a skill set. They have a lot of different variables they take into account when doing that micro level analysis. Um, so we could all do better there and getting trained and learning about what all those different factors are when you're doing that micro level analysis and what needs to be assessed. So even someone, whether they're looking at things as someone from relational frame theory background or verbal behavior background, they may miss out on a lot of the micro level analysis as well, because it's just not something that's trained. And we have some resources relating to that example I just gave and that, that deficit overarching in our field with the micro level analysis from the do better webinars. Um, so in the show notes, I'll put a link to that. We have two webinars that Steve Ward did with us on teaching students well. And then we have a couple that I did on thinking like a behavior analyst and um, really looking at the deeper dive into like why a learner might not be doing things. And I also have a podcast episode with Matt Sicoria on it as well. So we'll link all of that in the show notes. Um, so again, that was a really long ramble, but uh, did you have any thoughts on that, Joe? No, yeah, that was great. Just because like that whole section for me was, took me a long time just to dissect just because I had to listen it over and over again. And my first initial reaction um, was what do you mean about the leprechaun being tricky? I mean, are we talking about lucky terms? Yeah. Leprechaun? Right. So there's that talking? history too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a history too. And it, when I listened, I was like, wait, wait. And I, and it took me like five minutes just to think process it through my mind too. It's like, we got the lucky terms, Leprechaun, and when we got to this horror film, you know, <laughs> Leprechaun, and it's like, yep. okay, yeah. but yeah, but no, you thank you for that. Um, and I know I'll definitely go back to those additional resources too, um, for the from the Dude Better movement. Yeah. Um, just They're to uh, um, dissect. Yeah. All right. So here are the final closing thoughts I have on this topic. 
So one of the things that saddened me about this whole entire thing, and I wrote a lovely Facebook post about it after Fava, is that um, is the people that I talked to from the supposed supposed different camps are brilliant people in the work they're doing, and they're dedicated to whatever viewpoint they say they align with, and it's incredible, and they're making amazing gains with their clients. But I always learn new information from each person I talk to, and for some of the people, the information is not actually new. It's just different ways of talking about it and people are just doing different jobs of disseminating. So they may say, oh, I've been doing that for years. And I say, okay, well, what resources have you created so practitioners can do that and they haven't created any. So I guess it's actually two things that make me sad. It's that people, brilliant, brilliant people who are doing really amazing things and disseminating some of those things. But then there's additional things that they're doing that make them even more effective and those aren't getting disseminated. Most likely out of allocation of time in a lot of situations, um, but we obviously all want access to those things. And I think of practice, other practitioners would like to access that as well. I don't think it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> um, the bigger thing that makes me sad though is the failure to recognize by some people that regardless of what you call anything that we do, refusing to come together and discuss things in a way that pushes forward and synthesizes all of this amazing work, again, is ultimately a disservice to the clients that we're trying to serve. So if you're amazing at micro level analysis and you have some really great understanding there, but you shun macro analysis or vice versa, that's not benefiting anyone. Why don't we bring our talents together and create systems that can be the most beneficial? My personal, like based on my current experience, I would say we do macro first, then micro, generally speaking, but that isn't empirically supported. That's just my own personal opinion right now. And that could definitely be changed based on other people's experience and of course research. But the point being, why can't we all just get along? We're all behaviorists, as Dr. Pritchard pointed out. Um, he said nothing about the different conversations he's had with behaviorists on this topic are things he would say are right or wrong. So if that's the case, why can't more of us say it like that and look at how we can learn and do better for our clients with this information and create resources for practitioners and use all of this information to better serve the families and the children that we are trying to help. I think that's the ultimate goal here. So Hopefully this will help motivate um, anyone who's listening. If you haven't learned a whole lot about either of these things, relational frame theory, verbal behavior, or even that bigger like macro versus micro kind of debate to, to get a full comprehensive, well-rounded um, experience with those. Again, that doesn't mean dive in and memorize all the research and the theories and the philosophy, but find those practitioner resources um, and take advantage of the bigger picture and not just like, tunnel vision yourself into one camp and like only watch verbal behavior stuff or only watch relational frame theory stuff. So those are my closing thoughts. Do you have any closing thoughts, Joe? Uh, you know what? I want to echo just what you already said. Just like, I would love for um, us to all could just come together um, just to help seasoned BCBAs and also newer, newer BCBAs in the future of our field, just to um, come together and create like one uh, like a uh, resource for all of us to use in our practice. Yes, so I think that would be the most beneficial. And our focus should be is to do better. We should be doing better in our field, do better in our practice, um, do whatever is best in the best interest for our clients. So. Yes, perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you listeners for checking out our Do Better podcast and we'll hope you, you will join us on a future episode. All right, I'll see you later. Thank you again, you know, and Megan, 
thank you for uh, hosting this as well. Of course. Thanks for your input and your question. No problem. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Now go forth on your quest and do better.